and welcome to the weekly Bunker Roundtable. I'm Ros Taylor. On the show this week, the Queen is dead, long live the King, but are we right to put politics on hold during a crisis? Ukraine has recaptured some of its territory from the Russians. Can they keep up the momentum? And why do we dream about the Queen, even ardent Republicans? All that and more on this week's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Let's meet today's panel. First up, we have journalist and author Marie Leconte. Hello, Marie. Hello. You had a new book out last week, which you were hoping to launch, but then something else happened, didn't it? Uh, yes, I was meant to have a big party for my book launch on Thursday. Um, and obviously, I was really looking forward to it, uh, especially given that my 30th birthday party earlier this year was postponed due to Omicron. So I thought, you know, this is great. And then, yeah, Nadim Zahawi passed a little note in the Commons at about noon. And I thought, huh, that's odd. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's fine. Obviously, it happens. I think the main thing that amused me was my friend John Elledge, who some listeners may be familiar with, who texted me and he said, well, on the day of my book launch, the Prime Minister resigned. Must you really upstage me in every possible way? <laughs> also with us is writer and editor Justin Quirk. Hello, Justin. Hello, Ros. There's good news this week on COVID, I think. Yes, I bring glad tidings. Um, According to the ONS, COVID infections have fallen to their lowest level in 12 months. Uh, Fewer than a million people have had the virus in the last week in August, which is only about one in 70. We're at, I think, one at 15 just a month earlier. It's a massive drop-off. This is also particularly good news for me because I was picturing, you know, that meme where you have somebody who's about to do something and Mr Blobby is kind of hoving into view behind (laughs) them, about to slap them around the head. With the schools going back, I could just see this coming. I thought, everyone's forgotten about covid but uh, no, the um, booster programme starts next week. So anyone who's over 50 or vulnerable or frontline can uh, get re-upped. But um, yeah, that is unalloyed good news. Finally, we have former diplomat Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. Hello, Roz. You were at the rugby yesterday. I understand Gloucester won. They did. And uh, for those who are not familiar, you should all check out the fantastic try scored by Louis Rees-Zamet, who's a, a god on legs. I will, I will. Um, Why did the football get cancelled, but the rugby and cricket didn't? Well, uh, it's a bit anomalous, isn't it? So football was cancelled, weather forecasts were cancelled, bond sales were cancelled by the Bank of England, but sports enjoyed by the middle classes carried on. Uh, For what it's worth, um, uh, you know, at the rugby, there was a minute silent. We all sang God Save the King. And in fact, uh, rugby at Gloucester is, is by no means a sort of posh uh, outing. The, Gloucester is quite a sort of shabby city. Um, so it, it does feel anomalous. And ultimately, I feel for the football fans who were, who were um, shortchanged this weekend. We all knew it was coming, but it was nonetheless a shock. She didn't quite match Louis XIV's record of 72 years on the throne, but most of us can't remember any other monarch than the Queen. Marie, were you taken aback by the solemnity of it all? Um, So yes and no, I think actually I I sort of had the opposite reaction, I think, in that I was surprised by my own solemnity. In that, you know, so I remember uh, Kate and Will getting married and I hated every single second of it. Um, And actually, no, I, I, I... really surprised myself. I was quite sad myself. And I thought that the first two days at least were actually very, very touching and quite emotional. Justin, did you blub? Because I must admit, 
I did for about 30 seconds in a very British way where I felt very choked up <laughs> and I couldn't really speak because I was trying to subdue my sobs. Um, did that happen to you? Uh, I'm afraid not. I mean, me, the, the stony heart of Taylor was melted, but mine, I'm afraid, wasn't. Um, I think possibly at the moment it all seems slightly unreal. I think possibly the funeral will feel like a much, much bigger deal. I think that's a week from now. I think that will feel like a much, uh, much bigger thing for people to sort of set upon. Um, no, and, and I think, you know, the fact is it's come rather gradually. Um, I mean, to be honest, my emotional spectrum is also all over the place in terms of what makes me cry and what doesn't. So I'm possibly not the best uh, bellwether for how emotional the nation was feeling. Yeah, I must admit, by the time of the funeral, I think I will just be... Uh over it. It was an immediate reaction. It was almost Pavlovian. I just couldn't stop myself. But once now I've got over the shock, um, I think I think I'm now over it. Arthur, you're no stranger to official ceremony, but have you been surprised by the sheer scale of it all? Actually, I'm not. Uh, one specific reason is that um, when you're a diplomat, which I was for a while, uh, you have to have your plans in place for this specific event, the passing of the monarch. Uh, and there's incredibly complicated rules and regulations about what you will and won't do. Uh, were you representing Britain overseas in an embassy? So you need to have the right clothes ready. You need to have the right stationery, all the sort of stuff with the black edge. Uh, you need to not go to all kinds of different events. Um and the sort of full court mourning, as it's known, uh, is observed. So um, I wasn't, I haven't been surprised by the scale of the kind of official uh, system winding into gear. I suppose I've been slightly surprised by the weird stuff. I mean, we've already touched on the fact that football matches weren't played, and I genuinely don't see really what the case for that would have been. I am reminded, though, that after the death of Princess Diana, which, of course, was not kind of in the same official sense a national event, the country started to get a bit divided of people who said, I've had enough of hearing about this, and those who wanted still to hear more. This period feels... It feels particularly strange because we're watching events that have been planned for decades unfold while the normal business of the Bunker podcast is completely on hold. So much of this feels purely performative, but is that the point at the moment? I think it is to some extent. I mean, after all, having a constitutional monarchy is a massive performative activity, uh, you know, that we've probably all had that experience where you explain to someone who's not from this country the fact that the queen or now the king has no power at all. And and often people scratch their heads and think, well, why, why do you have them then? Um, so I suppose the degree to which it is all about ceremony, it's all about sort of dignity. And I think, is it Badgett, the constitutional expert of the 19th century, talks about the dignified element of the British constitution in the monarchy. So, so much of this is about these rituals which are carried out. Yes, there are lots of people who feel quite turned off by that or, or in a sort of rationalist way question the value of it. But undoubtedly, it works for a huge proportion of our population. Um, and so in that sense, this performance is very important. Justin, do you think brands and public figures are struggling a bit to work out what's appropriate? Oh, completely. You know, I've worked in brand management. I don't envy anybody having to make these calls at the moment. Um, I think there's a sense among quite a few people that, you know, certain brands have overreacted. I think that's also quite easy to say now because I think, you know, we're four or five days out and we can see that I think the reaction has largely been fairly sombre, fairly muted, there hasn't been any hysteria. 
if this had happened, I don't know, a month ago when it was 35 degrees and everyone was off school, maybe the reaction would have been very different. And I think, you know, some poor brand manager at 9pm on Thursday night had to make the call about what do we say, what do we put on Twitter, what do we cancel? And I was talking to a friend on Friday night who works for a very major sort of high street retailer. And they were in absolute tailspin. And they were like, yes, we do have contingency plans for this stuff, but then actually having to action them. And suddenly, you know, every shop in the country wants their window display changing. So good luck getting a shop fitter who can come and do that. And I think it's really, really difficult. And, you know, and also the, there's a herd mentality in this stuff, you know, so if Domino's Pizza do it, Pizza Hut feel like they have to do it. But I think, you know, brands are just very cognizant of these things can blow up really, really badly. I mean, I know one friend of mine worked for a big automotive retailer and he said a couple of years ago they scheduled a completely innocuous tweet, unfortunately, that someone had programmed to go out at 11am on Remembrance Sunday. I believe that happened to uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh, their Twitter account posted the new season, I think the new Canada uh, season is starting soon and there was a picture of a crown saying the, <laughs> the crown's now up for grabs, ladies. And, <laughs> and yeah, within hours uh, that was posted and yeah, just a very bad scheduled tweet. And again, to be fair, I think for people who are saying, oh, you know, why is everyone overreacting? You only have to look particularly in the last few years the way certain people and brands have been monstered for, say, not wearing poppies that I think you can see why people have been keen to be a bit more performative i did notice in leicester square on thursday night when it happened the front of tgi for tgi fridays was very solemnly lit up which i think is what you would have wanted <laughs> it's just it's pretty unprecedented isn't it because you know in 1952 we didn't have pizza delivery companies <laughs> who had to worry about how they should respond <laughs> well that's i mean with all this stuff i mean there's i think this is partly why it's such a strange period because there is nothing to benchmark this against you know, because even, you know, Prince Philip passing away was, I guess, relatively recent, but it's not of the same magnitude constitutionally. And as you say, there's nothing within living memory. I mean, my, you know, my mum is 73 and I think she said the first thing she ever saw on television, like her earliest memory is the coronation. So anyone around that age or younger, you know, has no functional memory of a time before this. Yeah, my mum was exactly the same. She remembered, well, not first memory, but uh, going round to a, to another person's house to watch TV for the first time. Mm. That was the, the big thing. Marie, today a woman in Edinburgh uh, was charged after she held up a placard saying abolish the monarchy. And some of the reaction online suggested that was fair enough because it was wrong place, wrong time. And the placard uh, used the word fuck. A man in Oxfordshire was arrested and then de-arrested yesterday for saying a head of state had been imposed on us against our will. It used to be okay to be a Republican. Is it ever a good idea for the police to make judgments like this? Oh, no, absolutely not. And I think it was quite interesting. It's obviously not the case in Scotland. I think it was the Oxfordshire one, I believe. But there was an interesting reaction from Number 10 that basically said, in you know, in Number 10 speak, Jesus Christ, police, like, what have you done? What is this? If, it, if even Number 10 is not going to back up the cops, then, you know, I think that's a sign that they've gone too far. But again, but that it really reminds me of lockdown, of just random police forces or random individual coppers going, and is now my time to shine. It's like, absolutely, A, absolutely not. But then obviously, like they don't seem to realise that it does kind of send a message at a national level as well. And it can shape the national narrative in a way that doesn't, you know, that, that is not conducive, I think, to healthy debate. And especially, you know, I think if you're a royalist as well, you do kind of right now want to make the case that you can have a monarchy and a liberal democracy at the same time. And that's totally fine. But obviously, these incidents do not make it look like that. I'm wondering if it's the policing bill and the all the prohibitions about 
perhaps you might offend somebody um, and being able to be arrested on that basis, maybe that's informing their thinking. Oh, yeah. And I think so. Just on my way here, actually, I saw a tweet from Paul Pousland, who's a barrister and who said he she's actually quite clever. So he turned up, I think, outside Parliament with a blank piece of paper um, and talked to the police and said, you know, if I were to write not my king on this right now, would you arrest me? And they basically, I think, yeah, sort of like called his bluff and said, we at the very least take your details and everything because it could offend someone somewhere effectively. So it's almost like all the people who are against that piece of legislation were entirely right because it was always going to turn into, again, overreach by, not even rogue, just by police officers who don't know any better. I have a feeling this is not what Charles wants, but I may be wrong. Arthur, how has Charles handled his new job so far? Can we can we tell how he's doing? I, I actually don't think we can, no. So he's what's he done? He's done the, the TV address, which uh, those who saw it would probably, there's nothing to sort of, uh, discredit him there, and it was a it was a, a warm and moving account of his obviously his loss of his own mother and and what he sort of feels uh, for the nation. And then there was the little walk about outside Buckingham Palace, and of course um, he's been seen in a much more ceremonial role. I think today with the, with the Queen's coffin arriving at Edinburgh, um, I think these are the bits of his reign that everyone's behind him. Uh, he's he obviously will have been thinking about these first few days for uh, decades, literally. Uh, and I would be very surprised if anything goes wrong. I think that, you know, the challenge will definitely be in, in the months and years following. I spoke to Stephen Bates, The Guardian's former and I think only royal correspondent, and asked him why the Queen chose not to downsize our monarchy as other European countries did during the 20th century. Well, for a long time, there wasn't any pressure on her, any public pressure on her to do that. The annual uh, settlement that uh, was reached with the government was really quite uh, generous. She didn't pay tax, for example. And so the uh, court just uh, rolled on. There were lots of hangers-on, lots of old retainers, many of them living in grace and favour apartments. And the tendency was to employ retired military chaps or Old Etonians and grandees, not necessarily the most acute or smartest of people, and certainly a conservative bunch, as courtiers and advisers. And she didn't really challenge them very much. Uh, She was young and they were old, so she assumed that they knew best, uh, which resulted, for instance, in the fabulous case of Commander Colville, who was the press secretary to the palace for 18 years, but didn't believe in speaking to the press and certainly didn't believe in giving out any information. I'm not what you North Americans call a public relations man, he said to a Canadian journalist who'd had the temerity to ask him a question. And uh, Commander Colville, more or less working on his own, used to knock off at three o'clock in the afternoon and retire to his home, which didn't have a telephone. So you can see attitudes to media coverage and publicity were entirely different then. And it was after he retired in 1968 that Prince Philip, who was an innovator and uh, deeply frustrated with some of the uh, old-fashioned practices of the monarchy and the court, persuaded the Queen that a documentary, a naturalistic documentary, should be uh, developed and, and shown. And that too was a tremendous success, even though to modernise, it's a very stilted and artificial sort of documentary. 
fly on the wall documentary. But that started an opening up process and uh, the long search for a wife for Charles accelerated the intrusiveness that was already developing as newspapers got much more competitive and at war with each other in circulation terms. Arthur, we know that Charles can't be the same kind of monarch Elizabeth was. He simply won't have as long for a start. But will our monarchy start to look more like, say, Spain's? Well, Spain is quite a controversial uh, analogy because uh, the the retired king emeritus, so in, in Spain the elderly king uh, abdicated for his son, has since been charged with various corruption cases and, and lives in a kind of self-imposed exile. And there are other, there are other investigations on other members of the royal family. Um, you, you can look at some of the other, um, you know, perhaps slightly more kind of sober case studies, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, we often hear about, and they talk about bicycling monarchs. So I think that's the Netherlands. Uh, it doesn't appear that our monarchy is ready to go there yet. I'd say that much. What will be the biggest challenges that he has to deal with? Well, he has to deal with the fact that unlike the Queen, uh, we nobody anywhere knows the Queen's opinion on anything. Whereas we know Prince Charles is, a, a, sorry, King Charles, we'll, we'll be doing that for years, King Charles's opinion on most things. Uh, I am pretty sure that he is not going to continue to express a view. But of course, we, we know what he said last year and the year before and so on. So there's that. And then I think there is the sort of tall poppy syndrome where the, the the media, even the sort of conservative monarchist media, will still be on the edge of their seats waiting for the first gaffe, the first evidence that he's he's not, you know, lived up to his, uh, frankly, um, sort of impossible uh, shoes that he has to fill. And some say that he's a slightly brittle character and, you know, and, and that the, there will be moments where, where it, it'll be possible to kind of... Um, to sort of point the finger. So I, I think we may be set for quite a bumpy ride, but I, I think that the first few months, I'm sure, will, will feel very um, predictable because there's the funeral and then there's the coronation and then there'll be the coronation of the new Prince of Wales. There's a lot of formal things that will need to get done first. Marie, returning to the effect this is having on the rest of the world, the Lib Dems decided to abandon their conference altogether because it overlapped with the funeral on Monday. And I must admit, I felt uncomfortable about that. I know hardly anyone seems to care about the Lib Dems and whether they have a chance to get together and talk about Lib Dem stuff, but I do care. <laughs> I would feel the same about, you know, Labour and, and the Conservatives. Should the monarchy shut down or effectively shut down political events in this way? Well, I think for a start, I've decided to believe that uh, this was just a convenient excuse because I was meant to go and actually could not go to Lib Dem conference anymore. So I think that was just heartbroken Lib Dems thinking, OK, well, if Marie can't make it, then, you know, how could we possibly convene? That's definitely um, what happened. Yeah, yeah no, I've no, no, heard no, I, it from, I, yeah. from the top of the party, <laughs> yes. Uh, but no, so more, more seriously, I, I don't So I wonder, I'm not even convinced it's the monarchy itself. I think what I found really interesting over the past few days actually has been the self-policing from a lot of people. So you saw that on Twitter a lot of people saying, you know, do not be the one to get daily mailed, like you do not want to lose your job because of one tweet. And as far as I can tell, actually very little of the kind of like McCarthyism has happened so far. So I wonder if it's not more that, I mean, maybe I'm being incredibly cynical here, but maybe that's actually the Liberal Democrats saying, 
actually, if, you know, the papers end up doing a really bad hatchet job on us for still having our conference, will that lose us votes? Especially because at the moment they're fighting, uh, they're, they're fighting for Conservative voters way more than for Labour voters. So maybe it's a case of just looking at, electorally speaking, would that turn the right people, or the wrong rather, people off? Um, and then decided, but yeah, again, I may just be a cold-hearted bitch. Um, well, they were, I did see quite a lot of criticism in the New York Times in particular for putting out an opinion piece which apparently was beyond the pale. Um, it seems to me the foreign press could cover British events in any way they want to, but apparently this was a, a controversy that was jumped on immediately. Um, how has Liz Truss handled it all so far? Because I mean, this is not how she expected her first few days to be. I mean, she had this this big set piece energy bill speech and then apparently she was going to cut a lot of taxes and that hasn't even been able to happen yet. What did you think of her, her address outside Downing Street? It was fine. It was, I, I don't I don't have a lot to say about it. I did, so I'm, I'm shamelessly nicking uh, a point from a friend here. But, you know, you, you do have to feel very slightly bad for her because her speech, at least in the Commons, you know, on, on the Queen was quite bad. Well, quite boring, at least. And obviously people like actually even Theresa May gave a considerably better speech. But then if you are the prime minister, you probably like, that speech was probably not written by her team or for her. That was probably the boilerplate uh, speech written for the prime minister to deliver about the Queen. So, I mean, she's yeah, again, I think she's been doing fine. I can't imagine what it must be like to be a special advisor in number 10 right now. Um, and, and, you know, and, and I think you can't help but have some sympathy for her because what a week. Yeah, I, I think effectively she's not done anything horrifically wrong so far, which, let's be honest, is kind of where the bar is, I would say, um, with her. Justin, Britain is in many ways in crisis. Um, well, that, that all seems to be on hold somehow. Um <laughs> All political activity has ceased, except for an emergency budget next week, uh, at least until the Labour Party conference. Is this the way to run a modern country where we have massive, massive problems, but we can always say, no, stop? Well, arguably not. But then I suppose you come back to the question, like, are we actually a modern country? And I think often <laughs> we, and I don't mean this in a, in a trite or a pejorative way, I think we don't have the same history of revolution or post-war settlement or post-regime reconstruction, which has shaped many of our equivalent, you know, sort of fellow countries in a definably modern way. We don't have a single written constitution, but we have this odd accretion of pre-modern convention and contemporary tweaks and safeguards, which at certain times pull against each other in quite a weird way, which I think is what you're seeing at the moment. And sometimes that works very well, you know, say when the government wants to do something completely insane and it's kicked back by the Lords and you try and explain that to someone, you know, outside the country, it seems very, very odd. Um, and then at other times it feels completely ill-suited to contemporary existence. But I think in fairness, I think a lot of countries have these sort of weird inherent contradictions and oddities baked in. I mean, obviously I suppose in America, you know, the clash between sort of federal and state policy when these things often sort of come up. Some good news out of Ukraine this week. The Russians have been pushed back after a big counteroffensive by Ukrainian forces over the weekend. But journalists are not being allowed near the front line, so it's hard to gauge exactly what's going on. Arthur, last night you spoke to the Ukraine-based journalist Romeo Kokriatsky for Doomsday Watch. What did you glean from him? Well... I didn't glean in a huge amount about what's happening on the ground because the Ukrainians have kept a really tight hold over the information coming out. But we talked 
more about what it's like to be a Ukrainian and seeing parts of your country liberated and, and you know, the, the incredible scenes we've all seen. Um, but moving on from that, I think the way the Ukrainians look at this now, they've seen enough of what Russia has done to their country, both in this year's war, but also, you know, in, in recent years, that the only type of peace they're interested in is one where they throw the Russians off their territory and effectively dictate the terms. And it's very interesting, this, because it, it leads you into all kinds of complex debates about how you deal with a persistently aggressive uh, you know, land empire. And of course, anyone who's done their GCSE history will have studied the impact of the Treaty of Versailles on, on Germany and so on. And I'm not suggesting that's a simple analogy, but I think there's a lot of complex questions that come out of all of this. Um, but also, you know, it's a risk of getting ahead of ourselves. They've done an incredible thing. They've taken back 3,000 square kilometers of occupied territory, but there's still a long way to go. As Arthur said, Ukrainian strategic communications have been playing a blinder with some very moving videos. Marie, you've been watching them, haven't you? Um, I have, yes. No, it, it, they've been quite overwhelming, I think, all those videos. Of, and clearly filmed by either the soldiers themselves or uh, the, the people kind of who've just been liberated. They're just normal people kind of ru running out of their homes and hugging the soldiers. And it's incredibly emotional, but... Also, in a way, so we talked, I think, actually a few weeks ago about, you know, actually, will European countries in, you know, throughout the winter as the cost of living crisis bites, you know, will they keep up that support for Ukraine? And I think that actually watching those videos, you know, those videos are publicized even more over the coming days and weeks, that will probably strengthen the resolve saying actually, you know, A, this is winnable and B, look at the human cost because I think it's quite... It's been quite easy over the past few months, especially to see it as very much, you know, a, a war on a base level of soldiers versus soldiers, I suppose. And I think bringing back the citizens of Ukraine at the forefront, I think, of the war is incredibly powerful. So I would say that it's even kind of the, those videos have been quite narrative shifting. Justin, what did you make of Zelensky's latest speech? It was an absolute humdinger, wasn't it? I mean, it was even by the standards of an extraordinarily well-run comms operation. I mean, I would love to know if he's writing the speeches himself or if he has a speechwriter with him. I mean, some of the lines in it, I mean, we talked about, so there are 90 days ahead, which will decide more than 30 years of Ukraine's independence. 90 days that will decide more than all the years of the existence of the EU. Winter will determine our future. And that final line to the Russians where it said, you know, was it cold, hunger, darkness and thirst are not as terrible and deadly for us as your friendship and brotherhood. I mean, that's not something I'm Beth. I mean, it's really, really good. But I mean, it's it's so, so well done as a media operation. I think, as Arthur said, there's been this incredible tight grip on the information coming out, both that's leaking out, but also being put out sort of knowingly. And I thought with the way he talked about that, to Marie's point about, you know, they need to get through the winter and keep a unified front. It was the way they set that speech up, put a messaging framework around it. It was time limiting it. It was saying, look, it's 90 days. All right, something else will happen in 90 days. But that's the thing is saying, look, we need to get through this sort of three 30-day periods. And then what he's done really deftly all the way through of directly linking Ukraine rhetorically to the safety of Western countries. But I've been thinking, it sort of hit me again more this week. I mean, I've been sort of low-level aware of this all the way through that just how remarkable it has been through this war that in Zelensky, we're seeing the emergence in real time, I think, of a genuinely world historic figure you know, this is like seeing a de Gaulle or a Bolivar or someone sort of emerging in real time. And there's this uh, new documentary that's on French TV at the moment, I think on RTE, about um, uh, Macron. Film crew's been following him over the past year. 
And they have this incredible footage from literally like the first 24 hours where he's talking to Zelensky in the bunker. And it's incredibly raw. And you just get this sense of the speed at which he had to react and the self-possession and the awareness that he did it with. I think in a period where we've come to expect very, very little of our politicians, you know, I think we're all saying so far, you know, trust doing an okay job so far because she hasn't, you know, set fire to the House of Commons accidentally. And, <laughs> and you know, we haven't been disappointed in expecting nothing. I think to see, as I say, I think a genuinely world historic figure emerging in real time in front of us is just astonishing. And it wasn't what anyone expected as well. I remember having conversations with, uh, uh, for a report I was writing on, on Ukraine a few years about, uh, ago about Zelensky and people were saying, well, he's a bit of a joke. Well, we're his numbers were underwater and he was, I mean, he was essentially seen as what he was, which was a sort of joke candidate who'd winged his way through and there was now a stand-up comedian running the country. But, you know, I mean, talk about, you know, you never know until you're under pressure how one will respond. As I said, just quickly, even on that thing with Macron, like it is incredible how not just terrified he sounds, but kind of like nearly like kid-like. Where it, it, like the, the essence of the message is saying, "Can you, can you, and the other guys tell Putin to stop? I reckon he'll stop if you tell mm. him. Can you please tell him? Please tell him." Uh, which is mad. Which is like mm. listen to that now is just completely surreal. And also, I mean, puts Macron in a much better light for the amount of grief he got at the time for making those calls to Putin, and the fact mm. that he was obviously being very personally entreated to do them by Zelensky. Arthur, do you get the sense that Putin is under genuine pressure now? Yes, he is. Um, I think you can look at the the advances that that Ukrainians made. As I said, three thousand uh, square kilometers, uh, and they're still going. You can look at there was a leak of documents from the Russian Ministry of Finance last week, which related to compensation payments to those who have died. Fifty thousand soldiers. Uh, Russian soldiers. It, it's just an incredible number that, you know, the whole of Russia's war in Afghanistan, they didn't get close to that number. And you if you probably need to times that by about three to those who will have life-changing injuries. So Russia has had a terrible war. Of course, it's a war they can't even admit they're in. Uh, and Putin's problem is, and it's been from the start, that if he wants to do do it properly, have a general mobilization, conscript what is, of course, a vast Russian population, the war will become incredibly unpopular, incredibly quickly. So he sort of has to do this kind of pretend special military operation with uh, soldiers who are from marginalized communities in Russia. Some of them are ex-convicts and as mercenaries and Chechens. We, we've all seen these reports. So he's in a really, really tight spot. Um, and, um, you know, failure in war doesn't, doesn't help your longevity, even if you're an autocrat like Putin. Is this going to be the prompt now for countries like Germany to send more weapons to help Ukraine? I think it, it has to be. Uh, you know, the, we've already got to, uh, if you think about the weapons that are going now compared to what people were doing right at the beginning of the war, it, it's a different world. The HIMARS, these um, high mobility uh, artillery rocket systems. So these are the, the things that can take out the Russian uh, artillery if someone had said back in February, oh, we need to supply the Ukrainians with that, that, that you would have been written off as a loony. Uh, so the, there's pressure on the Germans to send tanks, uh, to send more HIMARS. They've only actually got 16 HIMARS there in, in Ukraine. Uh, they've already hit 400 targets, so they, they could do with a lot more. And I think, you know, success breeds success. So uh, it it is hard to imagine the, the major kind of European powers holding back at this stage. And it would I think it would be very foolish if they did. No one could accuse me of being a monarchist. 
but even I remember the time I met the Queen. I was about seven or eight and we were driven to a, an airfield somewhere in Shropshire and we waited for what felt like hours because she was late and then she got out of a helicopter and I remember this intense blue-green outfit and then it was all over and I waved my little flag. But that was that was a time and I have not forgotten it. Was that your outfit or the Queen's? <laughs> that was that was the Queen's outfit, yeah. I, I have a great bar of the Queen's outfits and her just colour pop, you know, that she achieves. I asked Stephen Bates, who's seen a lot more of her than most of us, what he remembers about the Queen. I think the first thing that strikes you is how small she was. She was really very petite. And that's not something that necessarily gets shown, particularly in the photographs of her on tour. The second was her, I suppose you could say, almost placidity. She was very serene and self-possessed. She didn't show emotion, but she was increasingly, as it happens, smiley and increasingly looked as if she was happy to be where she was, which I think was not always the case, certainly not in earlier years. So there was this small, smiley, elderly woman who was the focus of all attention, um, not only in Britain, but across the world. And funnily enough, especially in countries like the US, which got rid of their monarchies a long time ago. But the fascination remained. And American friends have always been asking me, uh, what's the Queen like? What's she doing? What's the latest gossip? As if... Um, they're slightly reluctant or slightly sad that they haven't got a monarch themselves. That's an extract from a longer interview with Stephen that we're running later this week on The Bunker. Arthur, you have met the Queen, haven't you? Uh, yes, I have. So um, when I was appointed as one of her high commissioners, which is you know a silly word for an ambassador, uh, I went for an audience with her and it was a huge privilege. There were only, I think, four of us uh, with the Queen for, for about an hour. Um, so I really, you know, got to talk to her at length um, and uh, lots of things uh, will stick in the memory about that. Um, uh, she's physically tiny and has incredibly blue eyes and uh, they, they stay in the memory. Uh, everyone says this. She seems to be amazingly well informed. I'm sure she has a brilliant team who help her before she walks into any room. But she doesn't give the impression of sort of reading from a cue card in the way that many politicians do. Uh, and everyone has also said this, you know, quite quite funny. Um, she, uh, I'm going to be careful because we, even uh, after her death, I suppose we should preserve some confidences. But she had funny observations about the country that I was uh, going to, which she had recently visited. Yeah, so it was it was a really really memorable and and special experience. Arthur, you are ever the diplomat. <laughs> uh, racist funny or funny? No, 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 no. Actually, no. They they were completely. Um, they were they they were ones that you anyone could tell without offending anyone, <laughs> except for the specific and and completely uh, unprincipled politician that she happened to be talking about. <laughs> and any royalist listeners can tweet Arthur directly on uh, <laughs> Arthur Snell. <laughs> Justin, have you ever been in the royal presence? Um, only somewhat indirectly. Uh, 1992, she came to uh, Kingston um, for a. They were. I don't know what the occasion was. It was something to do with because the coronation stone is in Kingston, so the first five, I think, kings of England were all crowned um, in a very. It's completely just sort of at the side of the road in Kingston. There's like this sort of vast lump where Athelred and all that lot were uh, knighted. Um, and she came down to see that. And it was a very big day in Kingston. I was working in a 
shop at the time. So I suspect also as a 16-year-old, I was probably being a complete dick about it. I wouldn't have gone out to wave or join the crowds anyway. But the one where I sort of noticed her presence much more, though, was 2002. I've been working in Hong Kong. And I came back the morning of whatever the Jubilee in 2002 was. The Silver. Silver, was it? Um, there were flags everywhere. And I just remember it being the first time thinking there's George Crosses and Union Jacks everywhere. And it actually looks quite friendly and positive. And uh, that sort of felt like quite a healthy change. But that's as, uh, as close as I've come. Marie, I understand you never met the Queen. Uh, no, no, I really tried to think. And I think the closest is literally just that I went on two dates with a guy who was so posh he used to party with Princess Beatrice. Was it Arthur? <laughs> <laughs> the secret is out. Okay. <laughs> have you ever dreamt about her? Because I ask because most of us apparently have. In fact, you know, there's even a Pet Shop Boys song about dreaming of the Queen. Uh, it features Diana too and the idea of Neil Tennant naked. Um, I suppose being naked in a dream about the Queen must also be quite common. Have you ever dreamt about her? So the saddest thing is that I've never dreamt about the Queen, but due to my job, I think I've dreamt of several MPs in the past, and that is just heartbreaking. We all have, Maria. It's just It just happens, doesn't it? And you can't. You wake up and you think, oh, my God. Yeah, am I that boring? <laughs> Jesus Christ. What, what does Mark Francois mean to my subconscious? <laughs> there was one when Boris Johnson was beating me over the head, and I was like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> Justin, more precisely, are there moments when something the Queen has said has touched you? Um, yes, actually. I, mean, I, I sort of surprised myself here. It was um, during COVID, about a month into lockdown, and she gave that sort of, a, you know, it was like a Christmas Day speech, but in April, May time. And I thought that was genuinely a rather beautifully written, perfectly pitched piece of writing. It was one where she said... You know, these are extremely difficult times for the country, but, you know, we will see each other again. We will be with our friends and family and we will meet again. And uh, it was very short. I went back and watched it earlier and it's genuine. It's a really beautiful little piece of writing. and It was very, very well delivered. And it was sort of oddly redolent of that incredibly strange time that everyone's just kind of memory hold now of going, oh, yes, being on your own in your flat and not seeing anyone and not knowing when it would end. Possibly a lot of the feeling that we're getting generally at the moment, I think she had a very good closing period to her life in terms of both there actually being a genuine need for a figure like that who's kind of above politics but in the public eye and also contrasting very, very well with the political figures that we had. So I thought her sort of final stage there was yeah, a pretty I mean, good the, one. The Platinum Jubilee in some ways could not have been better timed. Yeah. And then you had the Queen, you know, even just before she died, still on her feet and the impression of someone who was still giving right up to the end was, yeah, extremely striking. Arthur, her visit to Ireland in 2011 got a lot of praise as a triumph of diplomacy because she hadn't visited before, I think. Are there other times when she's made a tangible difference to the way Britain is viewed abroad? Yeah, I think there's a many times, actually. Um, and particularly, again, perhaps in the sort of latter part of her reign, a lot of the visits she did earlier on were, were slightly sort of colonial hangover. And I'm not suggesting that her behaviour was, was of that nature, but it was just that it was a lot of visits to places that had only recently become independent from her being their monarch. But uh, in more recent times, uh, I think a combination of, of, of extraordinarily effective communication, and Justin's already mentioned the speech that she gave, but I, I, I recall, in fact, it's a line that's become so quoted that it's already a cliche, which is uh, after 9-11, she said, grief is the price we pay for love. And I think that was 
a new line when she said it, and and it, and it is endlessly requoted. Um, and there, and there are lots of other examples of visits that she's done, or the way that she has treated foreign visitors. I mean, it's very notable that uh, she appeared to have an extremely warm relationship with Barack Obama, obviously the first black president of the United States, but also someone whose own family had lived in uh, his, you know, his grandfather had lived in in uh, colonial uh, Kenya, um, and so. She did genuinely seem to have ability to shake off the sort of baggage or certainly a lot of the baggage that went with literally being the embodiment of a thousand years of British history. Marie, have you ever seen a French president at all? Uh, so I have not, uh, but I can offer quite a fun anecdote, which is that um, I once terrified uh, a man who then went on to become the French prime minister when I was 12. Um, so yes, I was 12 and I, so this story is going to feel like it requires a lot of background, but let's just run with it. Um, <laughs> so, so I was 12 and I, so you have to do a work, you know, week of work experience as part of that at school. Um, and so I did a week at my local paper. Um, and actually, and that was really nice. One of the journalists actually brought me along to a, like, a very small press conference with the then mayor of Nantes, uh, Jean-Marc Quirot. Well, yeah, so it was it's just then. We, and in fact, he was very nice. Like, you know, we shook hands and uh, he said hi, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so the week after that, because um, I was part of a circus school and also I had no friends and nothing else to do. So I was waitressing on stills at an event, uh, which arguably was child labour looking back. But, you know, it was quite fun. I was not getting paid. Uh, anyway, so I was at this really posh event uh, on stilts carrying canapes and I saw the mayor and I thought, oh, that, that's quite fun. So in my nice costume. So I kind of went over to him in my stilts and lowered myself with a plate of canapes at high and he properly jumped out of his skin, <laughs> uh, which was really funny. And then, yeah, about a decade later, he became the PM. Marie Leconte on stilts. I mean, this story has everything. <laughs> that is an extremely memorable image. <laughs> Arthur, we're seeing activity in central London ramping up, lots of people starting to flow into the capital. Will what I will call monarcho-sceptics, because I haven't got a better word for the moment, um, be surprised by the number of people who do descend on London in the coming days, do you think? Uh, well, they shouldn't be. Um, I think it may be the biggest thing that sort of happens ever. You know, there isn't going to be another royal funeral like this. I think loads of people... Uh, who are committed monarchists will want to be there. Loads of people who aren't committed monarchists will want to be there to see the committed monarchists. And you've got leaders all over the world, no doubt, desperately angling for their um, their sort of seat in, inside the Abbey. I, I saw some report that, you know, they've been told they can't bring their armoured cars. And I, I find it amazing to believe that that the President of the United States will not be allowed to drive around London in his armoured car, but maybe that's the case. They're all going to be in little buses, apparently. Um so uh, anyway, so it, it, it's sort of, obviously, it's not like a royal wedding because it doesn't have all that jollity that, that goes with it. Um, but this is just, this is the biggest event of them all, I think. I have this bizarre image of world leaders crammed up in something like an airport bus. <laughs> <laughs> one of those overheating brute masters. Forget <laughs> someone throwing up at the back of the school bus. <laughs> Someone's eating their sandwiches before you've even left the car park. <laughs> There's going to be a lot to watch next week. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thanks to Marie Leconte. Thank you. To Justin Quirk. Thank you. And to Arthur Snell. Thank you for having me. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. 
If you like what we're doing, support us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was presented by Roz Taylor with Marie LeConte, Justin Quirk and Arthur Snell. Audio productions from me, Robin Lieburn, and the producers of Jelena Sofronevich and Jacob Archibald. With assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. And our theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.